This is the Clinical Takeaway podcast from HealthEd, where we interview leading medical experts on important topics that can positively change the way you practice. Here's your host, GP and medical educator, Dr. David Lim. In today's podcast, I will be speaking with both Dr. Anup Desai and Dr. Rosemary Clancy. Our topic for discussion is insomnia. Dr. Desai, tell us about yourself. Thank you, David. Um, David, I'm a sleep and respiratory physician, predominantly practicing in sleep medicine these days. I trained many years ago as a respiratory physician and then undertook um, post-respiratory um, training in sleep disorders, including a PhD in sleep medicine, and have worked predominantly clinically now for, for a good 20 years. I work in um, Sydney Sleep Centre in the Sydney, in Sydney CBD, and I also work in Randwick, attached to Prince of Wales Public Hospitals and their consulting rooms next door. Today, David, I'd like to talk about insomnia. So insomnia is a really tough, tricky topic. It's something that is not taught, I don't think, in my opinion, to to many people, to GPs, to, to general physicians, and even not taught well, in my opinion, to many sleep and respiratory trainees. It's one of these non-respiratory sleep disorders. It's very common. We all need to know about it. We've all experienced it, but there's a lack of good um, knowledge and understanding of diagnosis and management from a medical perspective, in my opinion. So I'm hoping to bridge that gap a little bit today, as, as difficult as that task is, David, but we'll we'll go from there. Let, let's start uh, with a very simple question. Why is insomnia important? A good question, David. So insomnia is very important, firstly, because it's incredibly common. We're all aware of obstructive sleep apnea, and in many ways, that's the most common condition ostensibly presenting to, to GPs and even to sleep physicians. But in fact, Insomnia is just as common, and it's often comorbid with obstructive sleep apnea. It's often comorbid with other health conditions like depression or pain conditions. It probably affects about 10 to 15% of the population in its full full spectrum of diagnosis. So chronic insomnia would affect about 10 to 15% of the population, though some people may not have the full diagnostic criteria, and and that could be as much as 25 to 35% of the population. So So this means probably a third to a half of individuals struggle with insomnia, at least on an occasional basis. So it's incredibly common and we've all experienced it. But importantly, insomnia is associated not with difficulty sleeping at nighttime, which we'll come to. It's also associated with irritability, fatigue, poor memory, poor concentration, tiredness, low motivation, mood disorders, Uh, in particular, new onset mental health disorders and cardiovascular disease. So it's got wide ranging implications, not just what happens overnight, but also in particular, how people feel during the day. So it's prevalent, it's it's comorbid, it's pervasive, and it it affects people day to day. Now, you mentioned a very interesting classification. You said 10 to 15 with insomnia, 25 to 35 without the full definition. So what is the definition? So insomnia is difficulty going to sleep or waking up, can't get back to sleep or early morning wakening. They're the kind of the three kind of nighttime scenarios. And of course, people may have a mix of them. It's associated though, importantly, you know, when we look at the full definition with daytime impairment. So that's the irritability, the fatigue, the tiredness, attention difficulties, um, distress during the day. And that's your full, if you like, diagnostic criteria for insomnia. 
Some people may actually have difficulty sleeping at night time, but it doesn't bother them during the day. Mm. That's actually good. And that's not if you like the full you know, spectrum of insomnia. But insomnia, for it to be chronic, occurs at least three nights of the week for at least three months. There's mm. different definitions of chronic insomnia, but essentially it's like that. So a good 10 to 15% of the population would have chronic insomnia disorder like that, where they get it frequently over several months and it affects their ability to fall asleep go back to sleep or return to sleep, and there's some degree of daytime distress or impairment with that. You know, uh, Anup, you already started to give us some ideas of some of the questions we need to ask, um, questions as you just mentioned, and whether or not it's been three nights per week for at least three months. So why don't we just go back to taking a good history from the patient who, in fact, is presenting with, you know, some uh, the complaint, doctor, I'm not sleeping well. I think it's really important to think about the sleep history, particularly in the context of insomnia. Now, we've done a previous podcast that I hope your listeners will uh, look back upon if they haven't listened to it already on how to take a sleep history and just to look at sleep in a broader perspective, including these non-respiratory sleep disorders, which is exactly what we're talking about today. But there's really some key aspects of that history taking that are particularly relevant to insomnia. As I said in the previous podcast, what you want to ask your patients is, what time do they get into bed? What time do they get out of bed? When do they fall asleep? When do they wake up? And starting to understand just those simple time issues will tell you whether maybe there's a delayed sleep phase that's part of their insomnia. That is, they're not going to bed and falling asleep till two, three in the morning, sort of like the teenager getting up around midday. And then if they do need to go to bed earlier, say to get up to work the next day, then they're going to have insomnia at the start of the night. So that's like a body clock issue. And we've talked about elderly patients that might fall asleep in the evening on the couch watching television, get a few hours sleep there, go to bed, get a few more hours and suddenly wake up at four in the morning wide awake and say to the doctor, I can't sleep past four in the morning. But with a history where you're recording their bedtime and their sleep time, you'll start to see that this is a body clock issue um, and it presents as sleep maintenance insomnia or early morning awakening, but it's actually a body clock issue. So firstly, just understanding when they go to bed when they get out of bed, when they're falling asleep, when they're waking up, we'll start to get a bit of a sense of, of those kind of conditions. If they're describing long periods awake in bed, that's really quite critical because, of course, that, that suggests that they're spending many, many hours in bed awake. And what that tends to do is build up the wakefulness response to the bed. It's essentially a conditioned arousal element in bed. Patients learn to be awake in bed. And if the best way I find to describe it to patients is they've got a habit of being awake in bed. And that, that is one of the perpetuating factors of insomnia that keeps it going. So again, when you're asking a history, you're asking about when they're getting into bed and when they're actually falling asleep. And you'll identify fairly early long periods of wakefulness. So that's very helpful conceptually to understand why they've got this insomnia on a long-term basis, but also how to treat it. And we'll come to things like cognitive behavioural therapy a little bit later on. It's important in your history for insomnia to ask specifically about medical conditions that may be part of their part of their symptom complex or part of their insomnia. So conditions like obstructive sleep apnea can sometimes be associated with insomnia. In obstructive sleep apnea, as you know, the brain wakes up from sleep and 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 you know triggers an arousal. Sometimes when people have quite severe obstructive sleep apnea, they have a very fragmented sleep with frequent arousals, and that can be a cause of sleep maintenance insomnia. So what they do is they wake up a lot overnight, then suddenly they're awake and they can't get back to sleep. And in those 
few cases when you treat the apnea, they stop waking up and suddenly they're sleeping right through the night. So that's an important condition to ask about as well because it could be relevant to insomnia. Restless leg syndrome or restless leg symptoms in bed is another very important sleep-related medical condition that may be a cause of insomnia or a big contributor. So this is when they're getting the restless leg symptoms in bed and it's stopping them going to sleep because they're getting the fidgety legs. And in that case, if you identify it, you want to treat the restless legs, um, get that under control, and you might find they're falling off to sleep a lot quicker. Insomnia is often comorbid with mental health conditions, you know, depression, anxiety, and, and certainly, you know, those other conditions may be part of the reason why this person continues to have insomnia. And as you would know, um, you need to kind of treat both conditions together to get that person better. But, but the history does involve identifying how stable or unstable their depression or anxiety is because, of course, that's a big factor in their sleep. It's easy to ask questions around caffeine. It's probably not a major cause of insomnia. Alcohol is, is quite important to ask about. So a lot of people use alcohol, in fact, as a hypnotic agent. It's probably the most commonly used hypnotic agent. So forget about medications, prescribed tablets. They're taking alcohol to help them go to sleep. But then, of course, what happens when they use alcohol? Their sleep quality is poor. It's very fragmented. They, um, they get increased arousals. They worsen things like snoring or apnea. And they may get early morning awakening. So as the alcohol washes out of their system, they get a rebound alertness. So alcohol helps them go to sleep, but the rest of their sleep quality is poor. So it's really very much a, you know, a false victory there. And obviously, it's not healthy to use alcohol as your hypnotic. So it's important to ask about all these issues. So we're going to ask about sleep timing in bed, bedtime. We're going to ask about medical conditions like sleep apnea, restless legs. We, we need to understand the comorbid mental health disorders. We're going to ask about simple things like caffeine and alcohol. As part of your broader history, you probably have already asked or understood issues around maybe recreational drug use. Mm -hmm. So um, some patients, of course, using recreational drugs, and that's doing all sorts of things with their sleep cycle. As you would know, maybe some medications can cause insomnia, particularly things like SSRIs when you first use them, uh, maybe beta blockers, you know, obviously diuretics can affect sleep. So you need to, as part of your insomnia management, cast an eye over the medication, just make sure there's nothing in there that's part of the problem. But the other big factors, I think, in the history for insomnia is start to dwell into some of the contributing factors. So a lot of people will describe an anxiety or fear about going to sleep. So mm. what happens is as their insomnia develops and they're spending long periods awake and they're finding the whole thing very frustrated and mm. frustrating and anxiety provoking, they actually start to fear going to bed. During the day, they're thinking about, oh, my God, I need to go to bed. I need to go to sleep. I'm not going to sleep. Or in fact, I've got a presentation the next day. How am I going to get on time or I've got to catch the train? I've got something important in the morning. I'm not going to sleep. The whole thing's going to be a disaster. Mm. So they won fear bed, but they also develop a whole lot of cognitive ideas, structures, concepts during the day that certainly don't help their condition. And, and this is where one of the major treatments, cognitive behavioural therapy, comes into play. This is the CBIT of cognitive behavioural therapy um, about trying to deal with these ideas, expectations, these attitudes about sleep, about controlling them, about turning them around, about reprogramming them, and hence to stop the insomnia by, by doing this really important strategy. So, so when you take an insomnia history, identifying this strong fear element about going to bed is quite helpful because it tells you automatically, you know, medications are not the answer. We need to rewire the thinking here. And that's exactly what CBT does. I've mentioned that you'll identify in your history long periods in bed awake. 
and that adds to wakefulness response in bed and that just uh, means the bed becomes a learnt arousal area and you'll identify that in your history and again that opens itself up to cognitive behavioural therapy approaches, particularly techniques such as bed restriction and stimulus control measures that we'll talk about or, or, or we'll have a sleep psychologist talk to you about, David, in a, in a podcast soon. Mm -hmm. Some people, of course, in bed do a lot of activity. So I often ask to them, you know, what do you do when you're awake in bed? What are you doing? Do you just lie there? Do you use your phone? Do you read? And, and some people will, you know, self-confess that they're doing things that they shouldn't do. Now, that's not groundbreaking to 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 um to diagnose that or get that in history but you know it's just something little that they can start to address where they often know there's a problem and it certainly doesn't help their condition if they keep doing that the the regularity of the morning wake up time and morning lights quite important in the history i think and you'll pick that up when you ask them about when they get up in the morning and how regular they get up because if they're constantly varying their wake up time and constantly getting variable or lack of morning light their melatonin rhythm gets out of sync. And the melatonin rhythm is what you need um, to be in sync to help you sleep at nighttime. So by getting up at the same time in the morning, getting good light exposure soon after getting up, you suppress melatonin, you wake yourself up, but you get your melatonin rhythm right for nighttime sleep to help you sleep, for your biology to help you fall asleep. But if you keep um, sleeping in or have very variable wake-up times, and this is quite common in, in working from home people now because... What they do is on their work in the office days, they're getting up like they used to, seven o'clock to get into the office by nine. But their days off, they don't have to commute. They sleep until eight, eight thirty, and then suddenly they delay their sleep rhythm. They start to get a bit of a delayed sleep phase problem, and a bit of a body clock issue that now becomes part of their insomnia. So, so you want to pick that up on the history, you know, so you can give appropriate advice. Probably one other important concept just to think about in the history is this idea of sleep state misperception or paradoxical insomnia. And it's quite, I think it's quite a common element of people with insomnia. And what, what this is, is that the brain, not uncommonly, doesn't pick up periods of sleep. So some of our patients might quite convincingly feel they've been awake for many hours overnight, or in fact, all night is a history that I often get. But then they're not drowsy at all during the day. And they might be like this for months. I get no sleep at all or I get two or three hours of sleep for months or even years. But then when you ask them about their tiredness and sleepiness during the day, which of course you'll do as part of your sleep history, they'll say, oh yeah, I get tired, but I don't fall asleep at all. I never fall asleep, I can't sleep. Now that tells you that they're getting more sleep overnight than they realize. This is what we call paradoxical insomnia or sleep state misperception. <laughs> it's often not their whole condition, but it may be part of their condition. And it's a very difficult thing to explain to patients or get them to accept, to be honest, because the reality is if they only slept a few hours each night on a regular basis, they would be falling asleep during the day for sure. Mm -hmm. So just like hunger or thirst, if you don't drink or eat, you will eventually have to eat or drink or you just die. And, and sleep's not that different. If you don't actually sleep for, for many, many nights, if it's very few hours, you will just drift off during the day. You can't control it. It's your biology. So I guess what I'm trying to say is... Um, there's, there's a few aspects of the sleep history there, David, from, you know, when you get into bed, when you get out of bed, the regularity in the mornings, um, how drowsy they are during the day, some of the comorbid conditions or medications, some of these aspects of fear or anxiety about sleep, some of the activities they do in bed that, that may be part of the insomnia. And by kind of trying to capture a lot of that in your history, you'll start to understand the reasons why they've got insomnia. 
And, and some of those conditions, some of those reasons are things that we can deal with as, as GPs or sleep specialists very easily, or at least give them clues about what to do differently. But then much of insomnia often in the longer term when it's chronic really should best be managed by, in my opinion, sleep psychologist or psychologist-based treatments, which is cognitive behavioural therapy. And that will manage a lot of those psychology-based aspects that I've just mentioned there and even some of the routine aspects. So CBT for sleep is a, is a whole program of, of different interventions that have been you know, shown in studies time and time again to be effective. And it's, it's a lot more than sleep hygiene. Patients will routinely come to you and say, I've tried everything, my sleep hygiene is perfect and you know, nothing will get me better. And just that catastrophizing, by the way, is part of their condition, if I may say that. That's their catastrophizing, and they do that all the time. And again, that needs to be turned around through psychological techniques. And again, hopefully you can see that CBT does that too. And that's nothing to do with sleep hygiene. And in fact, the so-called sleep hygiene stuff, you know, caffeine, cigarette smoking, the simple things about activity in bed, they often do get that right, but that's just a tiny part of the overall management of the CBT process. And that's why it's so critical, I think, for to understand a bit more about insomnia, but also to know and to be able to explain to your patients there's a lot more that could be done and that their limited self-management. Um, it's like me, as I explained to a patient the other day who was an air conditioning technician with bad insomnia. If I went and tried to fix my air conditioning unit myself, how good a job would I do? Mm. You know, you need a professional. And that, that's really what I'm hoping to get across today a bit that we're all too limited in my, if respectfully as medical practitioners, including myself, we, we really want to use the psychology-based treatments much more, which is CBT for sleep. And you've given me a nice structure, which I think I'll just quickly summarise. Look, as GPs, we're not bad at picking up those issues of alcohol, doing things that in bed, all the things that we can fix in medications and knowing our patients' mental health history. Um, so, so that's something we're comfortable with. I think it's important for you to remind us that uh, we should be looking out for those melatonin or sleep clock issues, uh, you know, just when they shift out and we actually ask those specific questions. I think it's, that's really helpful. And restless legs, yeah, I think we do look for that. But what I really love is making it so clear to us that, David, you've got to ask, are they affected by their perception of insomnia? Because we've got a group of patients with paradoxical insomnia that actually probably are okay. We just need to fix them in a different way. But the fear of going to sleep, that's a question we don't often ask. And also um, this idea of wakefulness uh, responses. Once I am aware of these two now, um, Anup, I think I'll be looking out for them specifically because this is not in my field of treatment at all. It belongs elsewhere. But I need to ask you, though, before we refer these patients to the psychologists, what is the role of hypnotics and melatonin? And is there ever a role at all? Uh, look, pharmacotherapy is effective. It helps people go to sleep. It has a fairly acute effect. The first line management, though, for chronic insomnia is CBT for sleep. Time and time again, in every guideline that you'll ever read on the international stage, there, there may be a role for hypnotics in the short term while you're establishing them on CBT for sleep. 
But in the longer term, particularly in the maintenance phase of CBT, they really need to be limiting their hypnotic use, um, maybe using a PRN in very severe cases or, or not using it at all as the non-drug techniques manage them. So I usually explain to patients there are two types of management for insomnia, chronic insomnia. There's pharmacotherapy and there's non-drug treatments. Most patients have tried bucket loads of pharmacotherapy, mm. many, particularly by the time they've got to me. But what they haven't done is much non-drug treatment, so CBT for sleep. They've all tried so-called sleep hygiene, as we just discussed, but they haven't done that much broader, first-line, effective treatment approach. And as they build up those techniques and build up those skills, that will overtake pharmacotherapy in its effectiveness. It will work for the longer term, whereas pharmacotherapy will only work in the short term while you use the tablet. The moment you stop using the tablet, of course, the insomnia comes back because you've done nothing to correct the underlying cause. You've done nothing to manage the fear of sleep. You've done nothing to manage the conditioned wakefulness in sleep. You've done nothing to manage the morning routine and the melatonin. Mm. Um, so hopefully you can see how a broad CBT program tackles all of that, albeit harder, but it, it's clearly the most effective, powerful and evidence-based program for chronic insomnia. And I guess part of my aim today is I'm hoping that um, your GPs and, and other health professionals understand and accept this and, and start to embrace it more. It's a, it's a hard thing to explain to patients a bit. It's a hard thing um, to understand the range of techniques that psychologists do. And I, I really hope um, that your listeners listen to, to Rosemary Clancy, who will talk about that, because I think you need to hear from a psychologist what they actually do. But it is by far the most effective. And it, it means that you don't have problems with your pharmacotherapy, you know, such as tolerance, dependent, rebound insomnia. You know, you can have falls and fractures in the elderly from benzodiazepines. We're all aware of the, you know, the limitations of pharmacotherapy, which you don't get with CBT. In fact, there's no side effects from CBT. It's remarkably clean. I have to say that I think if I said to my patients, or at least have the patients identify for themselves that they're lying in bed for long periods, not falling asleep, or feeling in the day anxiety about going to sleep and telling them very clearly that there are really no medications to fix any of this, but there's really good help available and they're non-drug treatment, would you like to do it? I, I can see that the question is almost a rhetorical question because the answer is, yes, please, I'm distressed. Exactly. They say to you, oh, yeah, it's all in my head. The number of times I hear that. So they know that it's, and you know, this is their words, of course, but they know that the natural outcome of that, therefore, is non-drug therapy is the way to improve it. But I think it's, it's, it's sort of, it's, it's easier to prescribe a tablet, but it's also hard sometimes to access these, these treatments, right? And there's a little bit less knowledge about them, which is what I'm trying to dispel here, I guess. Okay. In many ways, I know you've already whetted my appetite because I can't wait to speak to uh, Rosemary Clancy, a uh, sleep psychologist, to find out what she can do for GPs. I know, thank you for taking us through what I think is a very important structure by which we can assess our patients, speak with them about it in a way that allows the patients to understand there is real help available. Perfect. Thank you, David. Rose, can you tell us about yourself? Oh, hi, David. I'm a, a clinical psychologist uh, specializing in the sleep field. Um, I also work at an eastern suburbs uh, private health facility, uh, seeing mood, anxiety, 
uh, addictions and uh, sleep patients there, but um, my major focus uh, is is sleep. And um, I have, yeah, I've been working at the City Sleep Centre uh, since 2014, just seeing pretty much insomnia and circadian sleep-wake disordered patients. And so as a result, I, I specialise in CBTI because that's the evidence-based treatment for insomnia. Rosemary, as a GP, you know that we see patients with insomnia actually quite frequently. Most of the patients are reasonably okay to deal with, but there are some patients that actually make it very difficult for uh, GPs because they have a particular expectation. What is your knowledge of the dynamics uh, of patients presenting with insomnia in seeking help? Look, the one thing that first and foremost stands out is the level of desperation, which then leads them to start seeking some sort of uh, medication or, or substances going to help them to control it. And uh, so a key feature of this, as we'll talk further, is, is actually about control strategies in insomnia that end up backfiring. And uh, but the foremost one that they'll front up to see the GP about is, you know, I can't control my sleep. And so I need some medication to control it. I, I can imagine that if a patient brought it up for the first time, we may have a particular spiel that we would give to that particular patient. What's actually even more difficult for us sometimes, Rosemary, are the ones who have already been on medications for quite some time looking for another prescription. And some of the conversations are incredibly complex, having to do with who's in control, uh, why are you holding it back from me? And, and, and it doesn't make for a very good consult on the GP's point of view. It's, it's really a difficult one. I've, I've spoken in the past with an inner city Sydney GP, a, a petite, very competent female doctor, who said she wasn't actually fearful of patients with addiction histories, uh, doctor shopping for um, sedatives. Uh, she was actually more intimidated by angry mood and anxiety patients, quite often women because they're overrepresented in depression and anxiety diagnoses. Uh, but, you know, older women who become very demanding and uh, see themselves as uh, appropriately taking prescribed medications, except that they've now become a bit over-reliant on them. So they will always insist that they're using them responsibly and very sparingly. But in fact, you know, you'd pretty quickly find that the rate uh, that you're issuing prescriptions would show that's not the case. And these people really are quite dependent. But, you know, I remember this female GP saying that those were the only patients she was really intimidated by and their, their insistence and uh, their, their inability to let go of the issue as well. So it, it was quite, as you said, complex and, and difficult interaction. I'm glad you brought that up as an example because I can guarantee you that every one of us listening to this podcast would say, I have at least one person who ticks that box. So, Rosemary, let's just start from there. Because it is such a difficult issue, and GPs are not always taught particularly well uh, how to handle insomnia. Uh, we, we always begin with sleep hygiene, and then we struggle with whether or not we should prescribe medications because there is, in fact, enormous pressure from the patient for us to prescribe. I'm just wondering, 
what other options exist for us and, and what really is the best treatment for insomnia? If it helps, I mean, to use the, the RACGP prescribing guidelines to uh, hark back to, to say, look, this is not a personal thing. These are actually prescribing guidelines. And uh, so it's not me being mean to you or withholding. The, you know, the evidence-based treatment for insomnia is actually CBTI or cognitive behaviour therapy for insomnia. And, you know, there's a wide and, and deep evidence base for that now. Uh, and, and in fact, if you're in the UK... Instead of, you know, if you go to your GPs uh, complaining of insomnia, you will receive a prescription for online digital CBTI via sleepio.com or Glasgow University's uh, cognitive behaviour therapy program for insomnia, the online course. So, you know, you know that has such a, a solid evidence base now that the NHS has actually given it NICE ranking uh, and it's a recommended treatment for insomnia now, for first-line treatment. So, you know, this is something that, you know, uh, that a GP would, you know, maybe could fall back on. Um, so do not make it a personal thing, uh, but it is very hard. I know when patients are feeling, you know, desperate enough and uh, and they have a, what we call a sort of external uh, attribution style about, uh, you know, my brain can't regulate sleep anymore, so I'm going to need the medication to do that for me, and why are you withholding it? So, look, I, I, I understand it. It's, it's really difficult, and, and I've often said in the past, you know, we all have the potential to be Michael Jackson's and be that insistent, you know, we just can't sort of, unfortunately, he was able to employ his uh, medical prescriber. So, you know, that's what got it into further difficulty. So, but, you know, that, that insistence is actually, uh, you know, something that a lot of people are capable of, even when they might not have thought they were. People just get that desperate about sleep. Yeah. So I really like your point that we say it's not personal and then we go back to guidelines and show them, for example, the UK model, where in fact the, the treatment is a prescription for CBT. And yet a lot of us as GPs feel that it is true. We kind of know that psychologists can help. What we don't really know are two things. One is exactly what you do. But secondly, they'll see this is actually just, just as important. It's how I talk the patient into going to see a psychologist mm -hmm. and getting the right kind of expectation so that the patient would actually want it rather than resist it. Absolutely. And look, one of the things that uh, people tend to be more responsive to is if they want to know what value for money they're getting or what skills they're getting. Mm -hmm. And so you could say that CBTI is very much about uh, habit formation skills and thinking and attention skills to help people overcome, you know, realize the role of control strategies that backfire in insomnia and, you know, how to overcome that and set up good sleep habits for life. And that would be, uh, can I just say for a proportion of the population, sleep hygiene, as every GP will be describing to their patients, is, is appropriate. And, you know, that takes care of things and the person doesn't need you know, to, to front up again. But for another proportion of the population, uh, we need, they've been kind of trying too hard. They might be obsessively doing mindfulness meditation and just finding that they're getting into more hot water. Uh, and that really is kind of where we need to look at CBTI as opposed to just sleep hygiene as a standalone treatment. 
and CBTI will directly address the use of control strategies that backfire. And that, by the way, includes even meditation. Mm. So the very same meditation that someone has used, perhaps, you know, in the past to, with, with you know, less heightened expectation, and it has actually been part of a good wind-down routine to ease them into sleep. But now, because they demand more from it and they might be using it obsessively, actually becomes a trigger for insomnia. And I suppose that's the hardest bit for people to understand, that insomnia is, once it becomes uh, more uh, acute, more and, uh, and certainly when it becomes chronic, is that people have been uh, using uh, safe, sleep safety-seeking behaviours uh, or actions to unfortunately create more performance anxiety about sleep, create more hypervigilance. And that's where we need to kind of pull back on some of the obsessive trying that they've been doing. You know, I just realised that you've, you've given us a really good way to, or if you like, uh, an approach to the patient who is now uh, demonstrating some degree of desperation. And it is to really talk about the failure of their control strategies because they will it will resonate with them um is that a good starting point yes and in fact you can actually recall you know recent times they were they were using backfiring control strategies you know that they've been if, if we consider that you know since a third of our lives is spent in sleep they've been trying this probably every night you know and there's some version of trying to make sleep happen as opposed to just let it happen so you know that you you have recent evidence that they can actually join with you on you know discussing look isn't it hard when you're trying too hard and and your safety seeking strategy just backfires and it creates more you know performance anxiety about sleep I just really appreciate that, you know, to talk about what they're doing now, to help them understand that, in fact, uh, one of the problems is that, yes, everything you're doing is probably a good idea, but now it's you're trying so hard that it's actually not working and might actually be in itself triggering the insomnia. And that might just get us in for a discussion. Now tell us, how do we then move them into thinking that CBTI really can offer them you, you you mentioned many great things like thinking and attention skills uh, you're going to set them up for a good sleep habit for life but those are the outcomes can you tell us as gps when i say to my patient you know your strategies have failed have you ever thought about going to see a psychologist they go no why should i go how would i answer that question well it might actually help to say had you read anything about evidence-based treatments for insomnia like the psychological treatments mm -hmm. so if we start from the status from the starting point of have you ever heard of cbti there's mm -hmm. online versions of it now and you know if sleepio.com or shuteye.com you know mm -hmm. uh you know, don't grab you because they're not face to face and you want your skills from a person right in front of you and you want them to check your homework every week, then, you know, there are actually sleep psychologists who do this. So, uh, you know, and that might be a way in. If you actually describe the evidence-based therapy, 
which you know most people are pretty happy to hear yeah. and they, they do want to know which are the treatments that work and and not too far down the road of becoming dependent on medications and you know only externally attributing sleep success to medications um but you know most people are actually going to be you know interested in finding out okay i really want to know which which treatment it is that works here um and then just give you know give me a like a referral for that so let's just imagine that this patient is actually not incredibly receptive of the idea and has called you what sorts of things actually happen uh, in general between you and the patient what what skills are being taught what myths are being demystified right so and by the way can i just say that this is actually a very short circumscribed treatment this is not one of those long-term treatments right uh, i generally see every uh, people for four to six sessions and okay. and if they're involved in doing the experiments uh, around testing out their fears in sleep uh, then they'll turn the corner pretty quickly and start to understand how you how control strategies backfire and how to achieve what we're calling an absence of sleep effort and I know that's a hard one to kind of for many people to get their heads around, especially if they're good problem solvers, but uh, an absence of sleep effort, as Professor Colin Espy at Glasgow University says, is is really the, the key to what we're looking for here. That and also just good sleep habits, you know, a, a wind down period. And so that's why in the first session, I'm checking that people are just, you know, they know about sleep hygiene, you know, they, generally, that's pretty much everyone I see, because they've done too much in terms of sleep hygiene, and they've, you know, created more performance anxiety for themselves. But generally, uh, you know, it's, it's a good idea to check in the first session, do you understand what sleep hygiene is? All those, you know, lifestyle sort of dietary uh, basics that are going to be sleep conducive. You know, you're setting up your sleep environment uh, so that it's dark, cool and quiet. You know, you've, uh, you know, not been exercising too late there, though there is some sort of conflicting information, uh, research that's coming out saying that you you know, exercising late isn't necessarily a barrier, but, you know, this is one of those things that uh, you can just check on. Uh, mm. They're not having their caffeine too late, though then again, you know, millions of uh, Italians and Greeks and Southern Europeans are having a coffee at 11 p.m. and not having any difficulty with sleep onset. Mm. So, you know, we, we've got to sort of remember that there's a lot of exceptions to this, but the main issue is um, even if you're getting all the sleep, hygiene right is, is really the sleep effort part you know how effortful is that are those attempts to get to sleep um so so that's what we're checking in the first place how much effort has been made you know sleep hygiene great uh but is it going too far you know i just love your goal the absence of sleep effort it, it just sounds so simple doesn't it but being able to say to the patient you know can you ever imagine that the aim of all this is that you're going to go to sleep without thinking that you're going to have to do anything to help yourself fall asleep. I know the irony, isn't it? Is it this is why insomnia is paradoxical and, that, and why the treatment is paradoxical too. But, like, but it does sound incredibly tempting. I mean, as a patient, I would say, yes, that's what I want. And, and, and once we agree that that is the goal, uh, and now I can articulate the goal, the goal is to achieve absence of sleep effort. It's just fabulous. 
Yeah, it's hard. Yeah, I know. It's just the thing is, though, it's harder than it seems for good problem solvers. And this is why you'll see a lot of very high functioning people come into your surgeries that who are very adept at problem solving in their working lives. Mm -hmm. CEOs. Uh, you know, solicitors, you know, these are people who are used to problem solving adroitly during the day. And so therefore, why would their prefrontal cortex want to turn off at night? You know, this is an, it, 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 just when we need, you know, we, we don't need that uh, effort at problem solving. We, we're just talking about an absence of effort. And, you know, when they were four years old, you know that you know or, or earlier i mean it depends on whether the child was hard to settle or not but you know generally you didn't need to think about it when you were under 10 right it just kind of happened mm -hmm. and you were really excited you know um you know christmas eve is a, a, a great example really excited i want to stay up and see when santa comes and then they just fall straight off to sleep because <laughs> the absence of sleep effort I, I often use as an example have you ever fallen asleep during an, an afternoon session of a movie you've really wanted to see and you've just spent 27 dollars for a gold class cinema experience and now, because there's an absolute an absence of sleep effort, you're now finding yourself fighting off sleep uh, and saying, stay awake, stay awake. <laughs> uh, you know, this is, and it just shows you just how powerful um, that that urge to, that the homeostatic drive is uh, if, if it's, if, you know, you've been awake for much of the day and also that you're producing melatonin uh, naturally once you enter a darkened cinema environment. So then you get this, you know, two powerful forces converging to get you into sleep, just as you wanted to watch that gold class cinema like <laughs> experience, like Maverick or something. So you know, this is this is a really nice kind of example to show just how paradoxical insomnia is. Well, at the moment, you've told us a few important things. The first is that they're not going to go down a long rabbit hole of lots and lots of sessions. That it's very short, uh, four to six. Uh, that you've told us that you have a very clear articulation of the goal or the aim. How effective are all these strategies uh, and how long do they last for? Mm. Oh, yes. Good, good question. So the, the, the key behavioural strategy is to essentially reassociate. If, if someone has now uh, begun to associate or developed a conditioned association of their bed as a signal for waking and frustration and worry, then we need to untrain that association and reassociate, in effect, their bed with sleep mm -hmm. and sleepiness. Mm -hmm. So that's why we say, as, as part of the sleep hygiene, no daytime activities in your bed environment. If you're having your laptop on there, please take that away. Don't watch the TV whilst you're in bed. Look, I mean, if you're going to be purist about it, many sleep uh, psychologists will just say, don't, don't even read your Kindle. Don't read your paperback. You know, mm -hmm. that should be done out of the lounge. Uh, I'm not so purist about that because many people have this wonderful experience of falling asleep whilst you know, reading their paperback or they're reading their Kindle. And that just shows them how powerful this wave of sleep pressure is and, and how powerfully they're producing melatonin sleep hormone. So, you know, if that's working, I don't want to try and you know, fix mm -hmm. something that's already not broken. But you know, I think the key issue and, and the behavioural issue that does take people a bit of time to get their minds around is the idea of associations and midbrain associations. So I describe, so, so the words I use for people to, to help them kind of understand, um, 
you know, that the conditioned negative association of their bed as a signal for worrying and waking mm. is that they're, they're inadvertently kind of poisoning the bed environment with uh, intense emotion and the and, and, and waking and worry process. So what we need to do is kind of poison the sofa instead. Uh, and so that's why, you know, and, and once... You know, once a, a, a something, I mean, this is all controlled by a part of the midbrain called the basal ganglia, which governs habit. And once a midbrain association has has, has become entrenched uh, uh, at basal ganglia level, then you can't meditate your way out of it and you can't mm -hmm. frontal lobe your way out of it. You know, you can't think your way out of a conditioned association. You have to act your way out of it. And that's why how I explain to the patients that you really need to move out of the, that wakefulness and frustration out of the bed environment. And we need to move that to your sofa. And your cue for coming back from the sofa to your bed is not time-based. It can't just be, oh, I've been out here for half an hour now and I'm sick of it, right? I'm going back to bed. Uh, it's it's got to be sleep cues based. So it's not until you actually feel genuinely sleepy and that means heavy eyelids, you know, heavy head, uh, losing your place as you're reading, um, you know, missing scenes in a in a sitcom. You know that 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 means that you're now uh, ready to fall back asleep again, and that's your cue for going back to the bed environment. So most people don't tend to think in terms of uh, associations, midbrain associations. So it's a bit hard for them to get their, their mind around that idea. And and also, no one wants to get out of bed in winter. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> You know, as, as they'll say, most people think as a rule, I don't, I shouldn't get out of bed because if I get out of bed, I lose all hope of getting to sleep again. Mm -hmm. At least if I stay in bed, I've got some chance, mm -hmm. right? So this is what the, the sleep or the CBTI therapist is up against that people, you know, really are sort of clinging onto the bed and thinking I'll lose all hope if I get out of bed. And that's another thing that distinguishes or a core thing that distinguishes CBTI from sleep hygiene. Uh, you might have noticed when you see sleep hygiene tips on those websites that it's buried down at the bottom, get out of bed if you can't fall asleep within 20 minutes. Um, yeah, because I think there's a kind of ready acceptance. People don't want to do that. So, I just learned such important things from you just in that time. I, I just love the thought, you know, where you don't want to poison the bed environment and just poison the surfer instead. I mean, it's just a wonderful way of thinking about it. But more importantly for GPs, I think that when you talk to me about basal ganglia and habituation and how you confront and lope your way out of it, it, it just makes sense. I just suddenly go, of course, I understand now. And you know, just, just telling us, oh, if you can't sleep, get out of bed, it's an association thing. But when you put it that clearly to me, it's clear. I, I, I can see you cannot think your way out of that habit. Wonderful. Okay. So I, I, I hear what you're saying is that there are many barriers to patients actually wanting to get out of a bed into sofa. It's too cold. And oh my gosh, if I get out of bed, I will never fall asleep. What are you trying to do to me? And those are the things you have to deal with. What else do you have to deal with before patients start to work less hard at falling asleep? Mm. Well, a large part of this is actually about attention and, and what people are attending to. Um, and if, what if they, if they can see the role? I mean, I basically presented them the model of 
backfire in control strategies. That is, the more sleep effort and sleep aids, that is anything, you know, that you've purchased that is going to be, you know, supposed is marketed for sleep, right? Mm -hmm. Anything to basically try and bring on sleep, including, as I said, meditation, creates higher sleep expectation. And what would, that will sound like in our minds is, well, I should sleep now, sleep should happen now because I'm doing everything right. Mm -hmm. uh, and then that leads on to just more attention on. Mm -hmm. You know, you were just constantly monitoring after that because let's think about this. You know, your prefrontal cortex is saying, okay, right, as part of my executive planning, I've put this problem solving in place. Is it working yet? Right. So now I've got to keep my, I've got to keep monitoring this as an attentional process to see, is it working yet? Yeah. Like, uh, okay, you know, if, it's, if we've just paid a lot of money for some particular sleep aid, we want to see, you know, hang around and see yeah. if it's working um, and be satisfied that it's working. So now that attentional process, constantly monitoring, then actually leads into more hypervigilance, mm -hmm. right? So all our senses are kind of fired up thinking, okay, is it, you know, is it there? Well, we're there yet. Are we there yet? And, and at that point, we start to, you know, increase doubt about our brain sleep self-regulation and we start to increase performance anxiety about sleep. And that sounds in our mind like, well, why isn't it working? I mean, I did everything, but it's working for everyone else. Uh, so, you know, maybe there's something wrong with me. And then that spearheads more sleep effort and sleep aids and that keeps the cycle going. What a paradox. Yes, yeah, it just, yeah. And, you know, the difficulty in this too is, the brain has two survival tasks. As I wrote in my 2019 workbook, Unlearning Insomnia and Sleep Medication Dependence, is as our brain's two survival tasks are, one, to get me the sleep I need, you know, rest and digest mode, but two, get me alert and away from danger. Mm -hmm. now, and, and guess which one has to win? You know, which one it makes evolutionary survival sense mm -hmm. for our brain to put aside sleep to the mm -hmm. best that it, extent that it can if we're under any threat. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, that threat is both external threat, you know, saber-toothed tigers or well, now intruders potentially, but also internal threat like my brain can't do sleep anymore, so now I've got to search around for something that's going to help it because I've got a big meeting tomorrow and my functioning has to be top-notch. Mm -hmm. And now we start, you can really see how performance anxiety uh, about sleep increases. Uh, and, and so if we can understand that, that uh, you know, that, that intrinsic source of threat, you know, I need to be able to control my sleep at all costs, right? And I will search for any means or any substance to do that. Even if someone might be generally, you know, not what you describe as a pill taker, you know, they might actually be quite against their values, but they feel desperate enough, they are going to go, they're going to control this thing. And then there, again, you can see why good problem solvers might really be quite vulnerable to this. Mm. Rose, everything you've said just makes so much sense. And again, it's reflected in the patients we do see. Uh, I go back to my question because this just sounds like such a difficult position uh, for the patient to be in. And I can guarantee you that as doctors, as a GP, I would go, I'm not going to go there. It's way too hard for me. What are the efficacy rates for patients who actually uh, uh, get some CBTI uh, for the insomnia? Yes, look, I mean, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine 
judges shows or has it ranks all the the psychological sleep interventions and cbti has the highest standing um and if, if you know they have a moderate rating um have you know very strong efficacy for cbti it's the highest ranking of all the psychological sleep interventions or sleep treatments and much above standalone sleep hygiene which just has uh, quite a weak uh, mm. rating of e efficacy rating mm. uh, so it's worth having a look at if you if anyone's got a, a spam a spare moment just google american academy of sleep medicine or aasm uh, ranking of sleep treatments and i actually would ask you for all those links later if you send them through i'll attach it to your podcast because it is really useful tools for patients to actually see so and that uh, the, those efficacy ratings, treatment efficacy ratings are based on meta-analytic studies. So uh, studies that combine thousands of uh, studies and show the efficacy of cognitive behavior therapy for mm -hmm. insomnia. I, I have to say this gives me incredible hope um, that they can get better. It gives me great hope and that you as psychologists so fully understand what is going on in the patient's head and even in the doctor's surgery uh, between the dynamics, if you like, between the patients and the doctors. So maybe I should just ask you a simple question. What should I be doing the next time a patient comes in to see me struggling with sleep issues? Look, it's hard, isn't it? I mean, you can acknowledge that first and foremost, they're probably good problem solvers, you know? And, and when you think of this, right, there are, as, and, and it's, it's a source, source of chagrin for many people with insomnia, right? High functioning people with insomnia, that it's true. Millions and millions of people around the world do not do any sleep hygiene. They do not do any meditation at night, okay? And this, and they don't have any problem at all with getting to sleep, okay? This is actually a reason that I don't routinely prescribe mindful meditation. Uh, and I can see the relief on people's faces when I say that, because um, you know, most most often they've been to places where the first thing that people mention was, could, you know, can you do mindful meditation? Mm. And they, and actually, you know, and they know it's going to create more performance anxiety and mm -hmm. hypervigilance. So because it constitutes sleep effort, you know, I I actually kind of pull back on that, and I just I want to see, you know, if we can have a if they have a break from that sort of effortful uh, meditation process then you know can we can we see a difference already in their threat appraisal so one of the first things that you can acknowledge when the person comes into your surgery is you know that it's very often good problem solvers who get caught up in this because the whole thing is so paradoxical right and maybe it wouldn't be such a problem if you weren't so assiduously problem solving. Mm -hmm. And then if you can just talk about, well, treatment, you know, treatment efficacy, you know, AASM uh, rate rankings. And then, you know, I mean, at this point, if they're not sort of pushing for medica medications, you don't have to go to the RACGP prescribing guidelines. You can just talk about the, the efficacy of cognitive behaviour therapy for insomnia and how in the UK, you would get an, an NHS prescription for CBTI over a, a medication. 
if you if you front up with insomnia. So that's how much confidence the authorities have placed in CBTI. And so you don't even have to mention at this point that it's going to be you know a psychologist who tends to specialise in it. In it. Uh, there are you know more people coming to the in, in, to the the field in recent years. You know I know there are people with like nursing backgrounds or you know. Uh, uh, and, and look, what I've also, uh, I've also met a number of respiratory uh, therapists, you know, people who help people with CPAP, which is a you know, really difficult task because, you know, people do find CPAP very hard to habituate to. And, and many of these respiratory specialists are excellent CBTI practitioners. So, you know, you, yeah, it, it may not be specifically a psychologist that you're going to see. It, it might, if you're just focusing on the CBTI and where that's available, then that might help to kind of tip the motor into following up with the referral. The reason it's generally psychologists and quite often clinical psychologists is we've, we've spent a lot of time looking at habit formation and uh, conditioned associations and learning and unlearning of those. And, and also the sort of thinking uh, traps that we get and attentional traps that we get caught in um, because we're all biased aren't we we can't help having confirmatory and selective biases so we don't see that we're kind of poor at judging time at night you know mm. like for example what, what you find in a sleep lab is you know an 11 minute awakening on polysomnography uh, recording feels to the person like it's over an hour of wakefulness you know and and uh, this is so common uh, that there's a diagnostic category, sleep state misperception or paradoxical insomnia, where someone has pretty normal looking sleep range where they uh, spend a night in the sleep lab and people just don't believe it. You know, they just say, no, no, I, I was awake all that time. I just had my eyes closed. Uh, and this is, you know, part of this is, you know, our, our perceptual biases, both about time, but also about normal features of sleep that we misinterpret. Mm. So, you know, this, this is kind of part of the treatment too, when it comes to, sleep, you know, expectations, when it comes to sort of, you know, learning about our own biases, I spend quite a bit of time looking at what's normal in sleep and, you know, and, and in, you know, time perception and how we skew that. Partly because we don't have a memory or awareness for the moment we fall into sleep, mm -hmm. but we think we do. Well, there's a lot of stuff you do that sounds just so amazing and wonderful. So the real question for us as GPs is how many sleep psychologists are there? Yeah, there are increasing numbers now. Not you know, this is interesting because it's a, it's a it's a in a little corner pocket over here, un unbelievably, because, uh, you know, if you think of the three pillars being sleep, nutrition and exercise, there are far more psychologists who specialize in nutrition and exercise <laughs> and um and at the moment, it's, it's unfortunate that sleep has just been pocketed over here in the corner and, uh, you know, just, you know, been forgotten. Uh, and and really, you could say that the APS Find a Psychologist website also kind of has this, um, this feature because sleep is sleep is, is kind of or sleep difficulties are just kind of lost in general health category, um, whereas, you know, anxiety, mood, uh, nutrition, you know, eating disorders, uh, they all have very uh, standout categories on the Find a Psychologist website. So I think I think it, it does need to grow in recognition and importance in it, just in, in sort of psychological, uh, not an individual psychologist, but also as the collective that it, it's given more weight and more recognition. 
Rose, as we come close to the time to end this podcast, I wonder if you can just give us uh, your key messages. First, continue with the excellent attention to sleep hygiene because that will work with quite a proportion of your patient population. For those who are struggling more than just ask if they've heard of CBTI and ask them to, you know, and, and just you know, give them a link to in, you know, CBTI or they can Google it themselves. Look, I mean, I myself have a CBTI, you know, explanatory website uh, called letsleephappen.com. Notice it's called Let Sleep Happen, not Make Sleep Happen. Uh, so, you know, there, there are a lot of places to get information about CBTI for insomnia. So if and patients like to be involved in researching these things. So, um, you know, getting them to sort of start their own uh, look beyond sleep hygiene and at uh, CBTI in preference to just looking up medications and researching those. And then just talking with patients about the paradoxical nature of insomnia and within that trying too hard with control strategies that backfire to create more, you know, vigilance and, uh, and, and maintenance of insomnia and specifically insomnia thinking too. So if, you know, control strategies that backfire is really, you know, it's a key one for all of us, you know, uh, because I think, look, at some point, because insomnia makes evolutionary survival sense, we are all going to experience insomnia. You know, in periods of stress or we've got, you know, job interviews or examinations coming up, it makes absolute sense for us to have a period, you know, an episode of insomnia. And, you know, the, the brain is very good at self-regulating to kind of resolve these episodes of insomnia but if we start to become hypervigilant and start to really engage in control strategies um, that backfire, we're going to, uh, we can cause a chronic insomnia picture. And, and because of the changes in you know, our habits, you know, our, our actions, and also our thinking and attention. Sorry, I know that's not, they're not exactly concise. No, no, but it's a beautiful process. Yeah, uh, but I think what GPs are doing is already excellent. You know, I, I can see just how much it, work they're doing to, to try to help people away from um, sedative medications and into an evidence-based uh, treatment for insomnia. Well, Rose, it's been very good talking to you in understanding uh, the sorts of barriers and issues the patients are suffering uh, with and hence the level of desperation and also giving us a good idea of how effective and useful CBTI is. And you kept, you've given us many strategies to help in our conversations with the patients to help them choose a non-drug option. Uh, thank you very much for that. Thank you. No, thank you for inviting me. I really enjoyed it. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that Health Ed has put together for you. Health Ed webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice 
wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.